Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. This is Roger Stone, and this is the Roger Stone Show here at WABC Radio. WABC making AM radio great again. For the next two hours, we're going to talk news, politics, and, well, I'm going to lay down the stone-cold truth. You, of course, can find us at 770 on the AM dial, or if you're from out of town, you're not in the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut area where I grew up, you can find us at wabcradio.com. Better yet, I recommend that you download the 77 WABC radio app to your cell phone. You can find it in the App Store. That way you won't miss any of the all-star lineup that we have here at WABC radio. I'm talking about Sid Rosenberg in the mornings, uh, Larry Kudlow, the apostle of economic growth, the man who quarterbacked the turbocharging of the American economy under President Donald Trump. Uh, Frank Morano, if you're a night owl, on the other side of midnight. That's offbeat programming you're not going to want to miss. Rita Cosby at 10 o'clock in the evenings, weeknights. Uh, she is one of the most experienced, incisive radio journalists in American history. It is must-listening. Uh, Cindy Adams, the undisputed queen of gossip. Uh, Domit Carter, uh, who always has his finger on the pulse of New York. Uh, America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani, always brings it with style. Not to mention his son, Andrew Giuliani. You just heard him. Love Andrew Giuliani. And of course, the crown jewel, the Cats and Cosby Show, 5 o'clock weekdays, 8 o'clock on Sunday mornings, reviewing the biggest stories in the news, and on Sunday, setting the table for your Sunday. Be sure you go and download the WABC 77 news app uh, and do it now. Well, uh, the big Fox debate uh, is uh, scheduled for August 23rd. Uh, The Republican candidates are supposed to gather in Milwaukee, but uh, the question really is, will the front runner show up? In other words, can there be a debate Uh, if Donald Trump doesn't show. Uh, He said this week that he's made a decision, but he's not ready to announce it. I happen to know that Suzanne Scott uh, and Jay Wallace, executives at Fox, made the pilgrimage to the President's Golf Club in Bedminster, New Jersey, to make the case why the President should show up. I also know that Republican National Chairwoman Ronna Romney has been lobbying the president uh, to make the scene. Uh, I'm not sure what he's going to do, but I'll tell you what I told him. Uh, In 1960, Vice President Richard Nixon, who had served for eight years, 
had a narrow lead over the much lesser known Senator John F. Kennedy. John Kennedy then challenged Richard Nixon's to a series of four televised debates. President Dwight Eisenhower, New York Governor Tom Dewey, who had been the Republican nominee for president in 1944 and 1948, uh, and uh, Len Hall, uh, a New Yorker, uh, Nixon's campaign manager, chairman of the Republican National Committee, all advised Nixon against debating the lesser-known John F. Kennedy. Nixon assured them that there was no way he was going to debate. They were all shocked to pick up the newspaper the next day to learn that Nixon had accepted all four debates. Things quickly went downhill from there. Nixon bumped his knee on a car door while campaigning in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. That rapidly developed into a staph infection, and Nixon had to be hospitalized uh, and actually was in the hospital for two solid weeks after Labor Day in the skin-tight 1960 election. Nixon came zooming out of the hospital. Uh, he had made a foolish pledge at the Republican National Convention in Chicago to visit all 50 states. Nixon was 15 pounds underweight, still on antibiotics, still running a fever. Nonetheless, he made five stops uh, in states for campaign rallies on his way to Chicago. He showed up in Chicago thoroughly and completely exhausted. Nixon then repaired to his hotel room to cram for the debate. Meanwhile, John F. Kennedy showed up in Chicago and was sunning himself on the hotel roof with two gorgeous hookers. When the lighting check came for the debate, it's kind of like the weigh-in in a prize fight, uh, they say Nixon's face looked almost as gray as his suit. Nixon overheard the legendary television producer Don Hewitt say, Senator Kennedy, will you be requiring makeup for tonight's debate? No, Kennedy said, no makeup for me. It's not surprising. The famous author Teddy White said that Kennedy looked like a bronzed god. Nixon overheard this, and then when Hewitt said to Vice President Nixon, Mr. Vice President, will you be requiring makeup for tonight's debate? No, no, Nixon said, no makeup for me. Whereupon John Kennedy repaired to his dressing room where his own personal makeup man was flown in for, from New York to make him up. Well, uh, Nixon's advisors convinced him that he could not go out and face Kennedy looking the way he did. Uh, he still refused to be made up, but he did agree to use a product called Lazy Shave, which is a powder that is used to conceal your five o'clock shadow. The advance men for John F. Kennedy very cleverly turned the air conditioning in the Chicago television station off. The debate began. Uh, and Nixon was shocked when John Kennedy came at him, not from the left, but from the right. America needed a defense buildup, Kennedy argued, uh, that Eisenhower and Kennedy had allowed America's military might to atrophy uh, in their eight years. Eisenhower was opposed to a, to a defense buildup, and Vice President Nixon was 
boxed in to the Eisenhower policy. Eisenhower and Nixon weren't doing enough to remove Fidel Castro from Cuba. Kennedy and Nixon both knew that there was a secret classified Bay of Pigs invasion plan on the table, but Nixon could not respond that they were indeed moving against Castro. Lastly, they haggled over Quimoy and Matsu, two small islands off the coast of China that nationalist and communist China were fighting over. Nixon began to sweat profusely, and as he sweat, the lazy shave on his face began to run. He literally melted down on national television. Those who heard the debate on radio thought Nixon had won, but those who saw the debate on television overwhelmingly said John F. Kennedy had scored. Nixon's own mother, Nixon's uh, Hannah Milhouse Nixon, called the vice president's longtime assistant, Rosemary Woods, to say, is Richard unwell? But it was Chicago Mayor Daley who watched the debate on TV with a group of his party chieftains who said, hell, Nixon's dead, uh, isn't dead yet, but they've already embalmed him. The bottom line of this is that disastrous debate decision cost Richard Nixon the presidency. Therefore, my advice to President Trump has been pretty simple. I'm not saying he should never debate. I'm not saying that at all. But from what I can tell, Nixon had, pardon me, Trump has nothing to gain and everything to lose. With a 35 to 40 point lead in the Republican field, why should he give any of these challengers, almost all of whom are in near single digits, an opportunity, an open shot? Chris Christie is openly talking on CNN about hard charging the president into debate. Chris Christie's at 2% of the vote. 8% of New Jersey voters think he did a good job as governor. Why would you give that guy an open shot? If President Trump has any qualms whatsoever, he should think about that great debate, pardon me, that interview with Brett Baer a couple of weeks ago in which every single question was hostile. I think the president did very well but there were no friendly questions. There can be no debate uh, if the front runner chooses not to show up, and I don't think he will. What will happen then? Well, I predict that all the other will turn on the guy who's ahead of them, and that very narrowly would be Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Vivek Ramswamy, who's had a bit of a rally in the polls lately, and who's really an unabashed Trump defender, I think, will play the role of Trump in this debate uh, and will actually answer any of the attacks on Trump by any of the other candidates. I think Trump himself summed this up when he said, I think I'll sit back and watch the debate, considering it an audition for those who would like to be a vice president. Will we ever see a Joe Biden-Robert F. Kennedy debate? That would be interesting. Hank Sheinkoff, the legendary Democratic political strategist, joins us today on The Roger Stone Show to take a look at that, as well as looking at state and local politics. Uh, there are also rumblings among progressives about finding a candidate to challenge Eric Adams. Uh, I certainly want to ask Hank Sheinkoff about that.
Also joining us is former Governor Rod Blagojevich of Illinois. He too was a target of a weaponized judicial system that ended his political career. Uh, he recently told Fox Television uh, that he had seen real parallels between his own prosecution uh, and what's going on now in the District of Columbia, also in a Miami courtroom in the weaponized judiciary system attacks on Donald Trump. We're going to talk to Rod Blagojevich. By the way, I, I haven't known Rod Blagojevich very long, but I see why they had to stop this guy. He would have been president himself. He is among the most talented uh, political figures I've ever met. Uh, today's show actually features more Democrats than Republicans. If anybody has any doubts about our bipartisanship here on the Roger Stone show. And then, of course, lastly, Kimberly Guilfoyle will join us. You remember her as an anchor at Fox News, but now she hosts her own The Kimberly Guilfoyle Show on Rumble. My most recent interview with her on her show, as of last night, had 236,000 downloads. She has definitely emerged as one of the president's staunchest defenders, and she will join us here. This is The Roger Stone Show. It's uh, at WABC on the 770 AM dial. Uh, if you are not in uh, the, the sound of my voice, then I urge you to go to WABCradio.com where you'll be able to listen to the show in real time. You'll also be able to listen to it later, but the best thing to do is to download the WABC radio app to your phone. That way, you won't miss any of the pro lineup here at WABC. While you're at it, I urge you to stop by StoneZone.com. That way, you can download my daily podcast at StoneZone.live. You can also uh, listen once again to these WABC uh, Sunday broadcasts. Uh, previous guests have included President Donald Trump, General Michael Flynn, uh, country and Western superstar John Rich, New York City's greatest mayor Giuliani, uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, and many others. You can find those uh, by either going to the WABC app uh, or you can find them by going to StoneZone.com. Uh, uh, this past week uh, in New York City, a federal judge uh, denied a motion by the city of New York to throw out a lawsuit filed by former New York City police officer Salvatore Greco. Sal Greco is a 14-year veteran of the New York City Police Department, uh, often assigned the graveyard shift in some of the most dangerous precincts in the city. Uh, he has an unblemished record of service to the people of New York. In fact, at one time he held the record for the most DUI arrests, but Sal Greco was fired because he violated a seldom employed regulation of the New York City Police Department that said he cannot consort with or associate with people who can reasonably be expected to engage in crime. That would be me. You see, Sal Greco and I became friends when my wife and I were going through the two-year unmitigated hell uh, of the witch hunt conducted by Robert Mueller. Uh, and Sal Greco lost 
his pension, his livelihood, but probably more than all of that, he lost his good name. As the New York Daily News reported this past week, Salvatore Greco filed a lawsuit. The city of New York moved to dismiss that lawsuit. Greco is arguing that he was arbitrarily fired from the New York City Police Department because of his friendship with me, but that that was not inconsistent with their application of the regulation. Well, the New Yorker had a piece this week that said that Mayor Eric Adams provided private security for uh, Mike Tyson. He's a convicted felon. Uh, his own biography tells us that he provided private security for uh, the Reverend Louis Farrakhan, another convicted felon. It should be noted uh, that it is uh, perfectly permissible for a New York City police officer uh, at the time Eric Adams was a police captain uh, to provide private security on their off-duty hours. I think you have to get it approved by the department first. But why, uh, when he was investigated for violating this exact same regulation, uh, they docked uh, Eric Adams, then a New York police officer, uh, five days pay. Where in the case of Sal Greco, they not only took away his pension, took away his job, but today he does not have a good conduct letter. Without a good conduct letter, Sal Greco can't get a job as a police officer in any other jurisdiction. So he sued. The city of New York made a motion to dismiss. That was rejected by the federal judge. Then they made a second motion to dismiss that was almost identical to the first motion to, uh, to dismiss. Uh, and now the judge has dismissed the city of New York from the lawsuit, but said that Officer Greco can bring a, uh, a lawsuit against the individuals involved in his firing. It is the custom in these situations, I'm not a lawyer, but lawyers have told me this, that the city of New York would indemnify those who terminated Sal Greco. All he's asking for is equal protection under the law. Uh, this is The Roger Stone Show on WABC. Uh, stick with us here. We've got a great lineup. You're going to want to hear Hank Scheinkoff, legendary Democratic political consultant, former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich, uh, and Kimberly Guilfoyle, formerly of Fox News, now at the Kimberly Guilfoyle Show, are all on deck. Also in the news, uh, former, pardon me, current Florida Governor Ron DeSantis announced the reboot of his campaign. I don't think a reboot is going to solve his problems, quite candidly. Uh, he actually fired his campaign manager and got a new one. I think the problem there is the candidate. I think the problem there is the, uh, uh, is the candidate uh, himself. You see, they have spent millions of dollars. One of the absolute keys to running a successful presidential campaign is understanding how to spend your money. By my calculations, based on the fourth quarter filing of Ron DeSantis's political campaign, his presidential campaign, uh, he has an extraordinary monthly burn rate uh, of almost $450,000 a week. 
the governor and his wife uh, insist on flying by private jet everywhere. When I worked for Ronald Reagan uh, in the 1976 campaign, and our campaign ran low on money, well, Governor Reagan and his wife flew commercial to our campaign events. And in fact, the campaign received an awful lot of positive media around the fact that he was right down there with the people. He didn't require a private jet. I think the problem here is somewhat greater. Uh, there's a famous story about the man who owned a dog food company uh, and he couldn't get any sales. He wasn't able to sell his dog food, couldn't get any large orders. Ultimately, he went bust. Well, they asked him, why did your company go broke? He said, well, the problem was simple. The dogs just didn't like the stuff. Therein, I think, lies the problem. Governor DeSantis uh, lacks a certain likability, a certain charisma uh, that I think you need to be a successful president in the television age. And we still are in the television age because videos on the internet always get more traction than the printed word. Likeability is crucial. That's why uh, the DeSantis campaign has put Ron's far more telegenic uh, and far more congenial wife out on the campaign trail. But in all honesty, Donald Trump so completely fills the vacuum of discussion in the Republican Party and counterintuitively with the recent indictments in D.C. Uh, and the uh, ongoing prospects of a new indictment in Georgia, where I've read the transcript of the very controversial phone call between the Secretary of State and Donald Trump. No, he didn't ask the Secretary of State to go out and find 11,870 votes. He told them that he had already inadvertently, accidentally counted eight, uh, that large number of illegal votes, 5,222 being convicted felons, another 1,200 uh, being uh, deceased, and so on. And once you remove them from the totals, Georgia would have been won by Trump. This is yet another politicized prosecution by a George Soros-funded prosecutor. Anyway, thanks for tuning in to The Roger Stone Show here at WABC. When we're finished at 5, hang on for Ernie Anastos, and then at 6 o'clock, it's my good friend Joe Piscopo with Sundays with Sinatra. As my uh, favorite comedian, Jackie Gleason, used to say, away we go. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level 
Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show at WABC Radio. You can find us at 770 on the AM dial, or if you're out of town, we are streaming worldwide on WABCradio.com. Joining me now uh, is one of the most talented political figures I have ever met. Uh, I now understand why he was attacked by a weaponized judiciary system in an extraordinarily political prosecution because Rod Blagojevich, the 40th governor of Illinois, would have been president otherwise. He did serve as governor of Illinois from 2003 to 2009. He was in the U.S. House of Representatives as a congressman from 1997 to 2003. Uh, he is, uh, I must note, uh, a convicted felon like myself. But, hey, this is the Roger Stone Show. If you're indicted, you're invited. Specifically, he was convicted of public corruption for allegedly selling the U.S. Senate seat that was being vacated by Barack Obama, uh, which he, as the governor of Illinois, had the authority to appoint someone to. Uh, he served eight years uh, after a very controversial conviction, uh, only to ultimately have his sentence commuted by President Donald Trump in 2020. When Rod Blagojevich and I uh, were at Mar-a-Lago for dinner one night, seated at the same table, uh, the president was, as he often does, spinning the tunes from his laptop in the dining room, acting like a DJ, he sent somebody over to our table to ask us what we wanted to hear, and it was Rod Blagojevich who recommended Jailhouse Rock. Rod Blagojevich, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Uh, thanks for having me, Roger. Let me uh, quote somebody that we both admire historically, someone you knew, and that's President Nixon. I am not a crook. I didn't break a law, cross the line, or take a penny. It was a political hit that they did to me. A corrupt, weaponized prosecutors were able successfully to do at the AAA level to a Democrat governor. What they're now doing to President Trump, a Republican president, leading candidate for president at the major league level. And our country is in trouble, Roger. I suspect we'll probably talk about that. I believe this is the greatest constitutional crisis uh, we face in America since the Civil War. And uh, the stakes are high, and I think anybody and everybody who loves our country, cherishes freedom, believes in the right of the people to self-government, whether you're a Republican or, like me, a Democrat, a Trumpocrat like me, whatever your political persuasion, we should all be against this because what's at stake is those things and the rule of law. But thanks for having me, Roger. You're, uh, you're quite an interesting figure, and it's been a real pleasure to get to know you since I've come home from prison. Well, uh, Rod, I have studied uh, your case very extensively. It appears to me that your real transgression is refusing an order by uh, President-elect, or maybe he was president by then, Barack Obama, to appoint Valerie Jarrett 
to uh, the vacated U.S. Senate seat. But as I understand it, your conviction centered around a phone conversation in which the, the uh, prosecutors alleged that you were trying to sell the seat, but they would never play that recording in a courtroom to let a jury or the American people hear what you actually said. Well, there's so many parallels to what they did to me and what they're doing and trying to do to President Trump. And one of them is um, covering up evidence and ex- that's exculpatory that shows innocence, covering up evidence that shows the full story of things, putting gag orders on you, which is what some, uh, the special counsel Jack Smith is talking about doing to President Trump. In other words, undermining free speech, thwarting, uh, shutting down uh, free speech. But no, the whole thing began. My troubles began right after uh, Barack Obama was elected president. It was election night in Chicago. Political figures and high officials, and I was one, the governor of Illinois at the time. First governor, incidentally. Roger, don't throw me off your show, but the first one to endorse Obama for president. And I was approached backstage that night. It was historic. First you know, black president elected in our history at Grand Park in Chicago. Maybe... Uh, 500,000 people were there, maybe not quite that. Sometimes they didn't fight the numbers, but it was magical. And I was approached by a labor boss who worked with both Obama and me politically over the years. And he said that, quote-unquote, Brock called me last night, let me to come and talk to you. He's interested in you appointing Valerie Jarrett to the Senate. What is it that you want? Can I call you tomorrow and set up an appointment? And I said, of course, see me. And so I, the conversations began the next morning with my top staff. I told them you know, that Obama had sent this guy and that we should think about what we might be able to get. Now, these are political things, not criminal things, horse trading. And that's what they criminalized in my case. And then after I was in prison for nearly five years, the appellate court eventually got to uh, actually issue its opinion, and they reversed that case. The centerpiece of their case was a lie from the very beginning. But Winston Churchill said a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to put its pants on. And, you know, and that prosecutor arrested me at 6 o'clock in the morning, a sitting governor with SWAT teams around my house. It was, frankly, you should have, you know, who'd have thought, Roger, years later they do the same thing to you. Uh, he, at the time when he had me in custody, announced to the world that that's what I was trying to do. He's just a big liar and a corrupt guy. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. I went through that ordeal. I would never give in, and I still won't. And because... It's much larger than just me being a governor or even President Trump being a president. It truly is about our Constitution, the rule of law, and um, free elections. Here's uh, what you said on Twitter just the other day. Consider the endless persecution Trump has to face. Very hard. I ask, why would he put himself through that when he could just enjoy life and the things his great success has brought him? There's only one reason it must be because he truly loves his country and he believes he can fix it and make it great. Uh, Now, you're a Democrat. You remain a Democrat. I'm a Republican, but we seem to agree on this particular point. Yeah, you know, you've been through it, Roger. I went through it. I spent eight years in prison because I wouldn't give in. And uh, because, you know, what they're doing is so wrong and so corrupt you can't possibly give in. And in the case of President Trump, I mean, here's a guy who's lived, you know, in so many ways, a perfect life in the sense that he had all the success financially that he'd won, international, 
celebrity, all those things that go along with the glitz and glamour that Donald Trump used to enjoy before he got into politics, the TV show Celebrity Apprentice, which I was on, which he correctly fired me on. By the way, he's the only president in American history, Roger, Donald Trump is, to have fired and freed the same guy. Even Abraham Lincoln didn't do that. But I asked myself, why would he put himself through that? You know, his whole life, 76, 77 years, he never was charged with a single crime like you and like me, right? Now suddenly he becomes the president of the United States, and now suddenly he's facing as a former president three different criminal charges and likely going to get a fourth shortly, all by Democrats, so obviously political. But why would a guy put himself through that and his family when he could enjoy the life that he knew and that life that's so wonderful and not have to be threatened with the possibility of facing prison time? It can only mean that he loves America so much, and he, it can only mean that he sees just how terribly wrong all of this is. And uh, it can only mean that he feels like if he's successful this time around, and I believe he will be, notwithstanding what they're doing to him, that he's going to get in there and he's going to clean things up, shake things up. I think he learned a lot after the first term. I think he learned uh, something about government and politics that he didn't really understand as a businessman, and that is that so many of these partisan politicians in both parties, but I'll speak of my own party, the Democrats, Pelosi and others, Schumer, they had no interest in working with him to get anything done for the people. And I think he made a mistake thinking that they would make deals political deals and that the you could advance the common good and the general welfare by doing that, by working, you know, practically and, uh, you know, give and take in the process, which is how democracy is supposed to work. But instead, he walked into a system and a way of doing business now where, you know, the Democrat leaders in Washington were determined to do nothing but try to stop him from doing anything and destroy him along the way. They've taken politics to a whole new ugly level. And I do believe President Trump is enduring and suffering and persevering through all of this because he truly loves America and is determined to try to change it, fix it, and eventually make it great again. And uh, I, I marvel at his strength, Roger, because I know how hard this is when you go through something like that. It's amazing and it's inspiring. And he's a strong man. He's a strong leader. And that's what our country needs now. Uh, it really is quite uh, extraordinary. Not only did I travel with him a couple of days a few weeks ago, we went to Iowa uh, and uh, Las Vegas and then California and then back to uh, New Jersey, but I actually uh, spoke to him this morning. Uh, the man's strength really amazes me. I mean, uh, look, I worked for Richard Nixon. Uh, I worked for Senator Bob Dole. Very, very tough guys. Bob Dole was a true World War II hero. He was uh, hit by a shell uh, in Italy. He was told that he would never walk again. He was told that he would never have the use of his hands or his arms again. Uh, he was told that he would be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life, that he would never be able to feed himself, never be able to button his own show, see, his shirt, dress himself. He basically fought back from the brink of that handicap uh, through relentless exercise and therapy. Uh, he had a withered arm, which he uh, concealed in a very successful political career by always having a pen uh, or a rolled piece of paper uh, in his right hand. He is, was truly one of the greatest men of the 20th century, uh, uh, but it was in an age of, of politics where there was a greater, I don't know, congeniality. Republicans and Democrats worked together to to get things done. Uh, I saw Robert Kennedy 
talking about this the other day in an extraordinary interview where he said that his uncle Ted Kennedy got more legislation passed uh, on a bipartisan basis than any U.S. senator in the history of the country uh, and that his uncle Ted would often bring Republican senators home to the family Kennedy family compound in Hyannisport, Massachusetts for the weekends. Bobby Kennedy said that when he was very young, Senator Orrin Hatch from Utah, a rock-ribbed conservative, came to spend the weekend uh, with Ted Kennedy, uh, and that uh, that he thought Orrin Hatch was Darth Vader at that point. He was a he was a radical environmentalist at the time, uh, but that his uncle Ted understood that civility, congeniality, mutual respect, uh, honest, open debate could actually get things done for the people. That is the politics that I remember. Uh, you served in the House. What was it like when you were a congressman? Well, I was there uh, from 1997 until uh, January of 2003 when I was then sworn in as governor of Illinois. So there's six years, three terms. And uh, when I first got there, Newt Gingrich was a Republican Speaker of the House. And then after him, Hastert, it was the years of uh, Bill Clinton had been impeached for the Monica Lewinsky stuff. And it was probably really, it was so much more collegial back then than it is now, certainly. People weren't out to, you know, put the other side into jail or prison. Yeah, sure, the other side was trying to beat you in elections. The Democrats were trying to win the majority over the Republicans and vice versa. There was a lot of gridlock and politically motivated. And that was a little bit frustrating for me because I go to these Democrat caucuses and you never hear, you know, Democratic congressmen or women in the morning. We have these meetings at 930. Talk about, hey, how can we work with the Republicans to get something done? It was always, how do we stop them from doing stuff? And that was frustrating. And so it was among the reasons why I decided to run for governor, because you can actually try to do stuff because you're the executive. But as frustrating as some of that was, and I think the seeds were planted where, you know, the politics of personal destruction, and this was directed at Clinton, and I understand a lot of people don't like Clinton and all that, and what he did with Monica Lewinsky was totally awful and rotten, but not impeachable. And uh, I think that set the stage for the development of this new kind of politics that's gotten worse. I think it even started back in, during the Watergate, as with Nixon. And, you know, the one side does it, then the other side gets power, and they do it, and then it grows. And uh, now we got what we have, which I believe is, as, as I said before, we're at a point in our history. It's a central time of our history, a defining moment, really. And uh, whether or not this is the politics we're going to continue with, which is third world, Russian, Soviet style type politics, or whether we're going to have the people have more of a voice. But to your point about whether or not when I was in Congress, it was a lot more bipartisan, I would say not so much bipartisan, but there were moments when the shouting would stop. There were moments when the hyperpartisanship would be put on the back burner and you can actually make deals and get things done. And Clinton, in spite of his foibles, was able to put aside those personal attacks that went his way to find common ground even with Gingrich and with the Republican leaders. And the Republican leaders were willing to find common ground with him to move certain things forward. And in spite of the difficulties they had back then, you'll remember, Roger, the economy was flourishing. Things were pretty good in America. And uh, in, 
Democrats necessarily didn't hate Republicans and vice versa. So very different. Yet I, I, I look back on it now and I can see how the seeds of, were planted back then and how they've, those very seeds now are blooming, unfortunately, in what's being done to Trump. And I say this about Trump real quick, Roger, and you know the business a lot more better than I do. He's an outsider who's truly keeping his promises to the people. This is why they want to destroy him. And when I say they, I don't mean just the Democrats. I mean those corporate country club, Liz Cheney, Mitt Romney, the Bush family-type Republicans who join the Democrats in Washington, and yet they fight against each other over certain things, but they stay within the margins. When you got a true outsider like Trump who's actually trying to keep his promises to the people who elected him, and then he actually tries to do it, that's where they feel threatened because they're all lunching up on that system over there. I call it the political industrial complex. Lobbyists and staffers, presidents come and go, members of Congress come and go, or they stay there and become lobbyists. And these people are getting rich, the George Conways of the world, if you know who I'm talking about. And Trump is a threat to that. And he truly meant what he said, and he was keeping his promises. And this is why they've come at him so hard, and this is why they're so determined from keeping him from winning. And they know that if he wins now, after everything they've done, there's going to be a tremendous amount of change in Washington, and hopefully starting with the Department of Justice, because that is this new political force now that was never envisioned or contemplated by our founding fathers. So um, that's a long answer. I'm sorry for these long answers, Roger, but um, times are very different now than they were when I was in Congress, and the stakes are high, and I would encourage all of your listeners to vote for President Trump. Uh, if you are tuning in, folks, this is The Roger Stone Show. I'm on here with former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. So, Rod, let me ask you a difficult question. How were you treated when you were in the big house? I mean, uh, I, I, we had former Congressman Chris Collins on the show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Collins has served in hard time uh, in an upstate New York prison. Uh, he told me that he made lifelong friends there, that he helped counsel people on how they could start a business when they got out, how they could turn their lives around. He's still in touch with and I think has provided assistance to some of the men that he was incarcerated with. How were you treated uh, inside the joint? Yeah, well, you know, I did eight years and I'm the only governor to have been put in the higher security prison for the first 32 months. I was in a prison that's actually like the prisons you see on television. Um, most governors and and most of the time that I did in prison was at what's called the prison camps, where it's still prison, but you're not behind bars and, and there aren't fences. But for the first two and a half years, that's where I was, because if you're given more than a 10-year sentence, the law requires that you have to be put behind what the inmates call the razor wire. And that's where I was. And so there were, you know, gangbangers and, you know, uh, Crips and Bloods and Sureños and Norteños, Teanos, uh, Aryan Nation gangs. Uh, Pacific Islander gangs, Native American gangs. There were 950 guys there that were men there who committed murder, bank robbers, 2% white collar, a lot of sex offenders, and one governor. And that was me. Um, I have to say, Roger, I, I, I was treated very well by the my colleagues there in, in the higher prison and the, then later on in camp. Now, you're there for a year. You're going to have conflict with some guys. You want the window open. He wants it closed, stuff like that. There are going to be some guys who just don't like you. But I got to say, by and large, uh, I was treated very well. And just like that congressman, yeah, I have friends to this day that I made there that I'm in touch with, some that I'm helping, just like 
the congressman did. You know, one thing I had going for me, which the two things I had going for me when I walked into prison was they covered my entrance into prison. The media did live on television. They did helicopters following me from my house to the airport at O'Hare in Chicago. And then when I landed in Denver, because I, I was in prison in Colorado, uh, they were there waiting for me. And they, they, they filmed me walking right in and the cameramen and followed me the whole way. It was like I was a mini O.J. Simpson in the white Bronco. That's how they treated me. And these guys are sitting in prison and they're watching all of this on TV live. And then moments later, I walk in. So I had a certain you know level of celebrity among inmates, which gives you a certain you know kind of something that makes them have to be respectful. Cred, the big part, the big, cred. But the real street cred, Roger, comes when you walk in and they realize this guy got a 14-year prison sentence. He didn't tell on anybody. He's not a snitch. And in that prison world, when you're not a snitch, you know that's a badge of honor. And so they really treated me with really high respect when I first got there. Most of them, not all of them, most of them. And uh, and and at that time, Roger, you know, my life, you know, I left my little girls back at home, and my little Annie was eight years old. She would be seventeen when I come home. My daughter and my wife Patty, and you know, when you go through something like that, you you know you've been. You've been persecuted and framed by these lying, wicked people. You've got sadness and heartache and longing for home, as well as bitterness, anger, and disillusionment. You're feeling all those things. And you got a long journey ahead, which I had, which is 14 years to do. You can't even see the light at the, you know, the flicker of a light at the end of the tunnel. You have so long to go. You got to be strong because you love your children. You can't give in to these corrupt people. So you got to endure and survive. But at the same time, I, I want to say a bad word, but you're feeling like, you know what, terrible. And the last thing that I feared and didn't at all was whether some inmate wanted to screw around with me. It didn't bother me the least bit. I feared nothing. I've been so, you know, beat up that if someone wanted to do something, it didn't, you know, it was God's will. But um, anyway, that's another long answer. But no, mostly pretty good. And I learned a lot in that system. And I learned a lot about how broken the criminal justice system is and how not only broken, can't be trusted, how racist it is, but I've also, we've now seen how weaponized it's become. And a lot of these FBI agents, and I hope that still like to think most of them are good guys, and most of these U.S. attorneys are good people. I have to believe that still, I hope. But I think many of them have adopted, they've actually morphed into the very people they've been chasing. Notwithstanding, you know, my friendships with those colleagues I had in prison, most of those guys, almost all of those guys, were truly criminals. And they live their lives outside of the law. And you can see how they live in prison. You can see how it's cops and robbers, basically. It's the good guy, the cops against them. And I think a lot of these prosecutors have picked up this, the ways of criminals and have now applied that with the power they have. And that's why this Jack Smith is such a blatant liar. And in an indictment against Trump, he omits purposely the very thing Trump said on January the 6th, which is quote-unquote, peacefully and patriotically have your voices heard. Now, that's a fraud on the court, and yet these people get away with it. Yeah, it, it appears to me that it is uh, an egregious crime uh, to question the outcome, uh, the anomalies, the irregularities in a national election for which you should be incarcerated uh, if you're Donald Trump, but not if you are Kamala Harris uh, or Nancy Pelosi. Uh, or Congressman Jerry Nadler, or, or Congressman Jamie Raskin, 
or Senator Amy Klobuchar uh, or DNC chairman and, for, and future governor Terry McAuliffe uh, or Adam Schiff. Uh, all of those people questioned the 2000 election, questioned the 2016 election. Uh, Stacey Abrams questioned the 2018 election outcome. None of these people were charged criminally. Uh, Donald Trump exercised his First Amendment rights to question the outcome of an election, uh, and for that, they want to incarcerate him. Is there any doubt in your mind that if Donald Trump were not running away with the field, 40, 35, 40 points ahead uh, for the Republican nomination, and despite this unprecedented mainstream media attack on him, uh, continues to lead Joe Biden uh, in the national trial heats, as in as well as uh, in every swing state, that they would be bringing these prosecutions. In other words, he's charged with election interference, but is this not itself actually the real election interference? It's exactly what it is. It's an unprecedented way of interfering in the electoral process and trying to influence the outcome of the electoral process. And that's what's motivating these prosecutors. And I don't have direct evidence of, you know, contacts between the Democratic National Committee and Jack Smith or the, the uh, DA in New York, Bragg. Um, but I'd be shocked if there weren't. And whether they, they had their direct contacts or whether they're basically, you know, sending signals publicly through certain things that they're saying or doing, I have no doubt in my mind that what is being done with these criminal prosecutions is in harmony with the the uh, political goals of the Democratic Party, my party, which is uh, astounding to me that something like this could happen in, in the United States of America. I mean, this isn't Russia. This isn't a third world country. Or is it? And again, had I not gone through that hard experience and long, hard experience I went through, I might be skeptical about this. You know, one of the things I kick myself over, Roger, is when I had that power as governor, I feel like I was a great governor did a lot of stuff for people, and fought the system like Trump did, and my own party as well as the other party. But mostly my, I, the trouble I had was with my own party because my party had, at that time had controlled both legislative branches, but I was still able to push through stuff. But I look back on something I should have made a priority on, and that is to, to insist on the local school districts and pass maybe state legislation requiring that the curriculum in all the public schools throughout the state of Illinois is heavy on teaching civics and educating young people about how our government works, how our Constitution was formed, how it's supposed to operate. Because I think too, these Democrats are getting away with what they're doing. These prosecutors get away with what they're doing because not enough people fully understand that this is so blatantly in violation of the Constitution and the rule of law because at an early age, they just never really got schooled that way. So I'm kicking myself because I had that power, I should have done that. Um, but no, if Trump wasn't ahead, they wouldn't be doing this. And that's the thing, which is amazing. So in other words, they're going to be driven by prosecuting someone for non-crimes based upon poll results. I mean, this is frightening for our, our democracy and for our country. And this is the seminal election that's going to decide whether we continue more down that road or whether we elect someone like President Trump to go out in there and reform the system and make it work the way it's supposed to work and the way it was designed to work. 
All right, I'm afraid we have to end it there. I want to thank Governor Rod Blagojevich, the 40th governor of the state of Illinois, for joining us today on The Roger Stone Show. Rod, God bless you and Godspeed. Thank you, Roger. Appreciate you. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show. We're at 770 on the AM dial. Uh, you can also always listen to us at WABCRadio.com, where we are streaming worldwide. Today is the rare show where I actually have more Democrats who are guests uh, than Republicans, but we talk politics here on The Roger Stone Show, and I try to bring in guests who will reflect both sides uh, of the aisle, both sides of the coin. Hank Sheinkoff is a legendary Democratic strategist. Uh, Hank Sheinkoff worked as a meat cutter and a police officer before being introduced to political strategy and consulting as a union organizer. His first political campaign was for former Democratic Congressman Herman Badillo in his unsuccessful race for mayor. But Hank Sheinkoff has gone on to an extraordinary career in which he has worked in over 700 political campaigns across the United States and actually around the world. Hank Sheinkoff was a key member of former Democratic President Bill Clinton's reelection team in 1992. He also worked for independent New York City Mayor Mike Bloomberg uh, and the, for the former president of the Dominican Republic, Leonel Fernandez. Uh, he has worked for uh, another of a uh, number of other entities, including Teamsters Local 237 uh, and others. Hank Sheinkoff is a former contributor to CNN. His commentaries appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and uh, Hank Sheinkoff has also worked as an instructor and a lecturer at NYU, Harvard University, Fordham University, and Brooklyn College. Uh, Hank Sheinkoff, welcome to The Roger Stone Show. Well, I'm grateful for that introduction, and I'm uh, kind of flattered by my own self, I have to tell you, but I'm mostly happy to be with you, Roger. Uh, I, I really appreciate your being available because nobody understands uh, national, uh, state, uh, and local politics uh, like you do. So let's, no, uh, let's, ju let's just jump right into it. Uh, Joe Biden, 
Uh, I would argue uh, that the president's uh, policies have uh, brought the, the highest gasoline prices, uh, uh, record inflation, a 76 percent increase in the uh, in the cost of groceries. Uh, I have questions about the uh, the uh, the war in Ukraine uh, and whether and why we have no ongoing peace talks yet in poll after poll. Uh, Joe Biden uh, and former President Donald Trump seem to be locked in a near dead heat uh, in most polls with Trump holding a narrow lead. My reading of the country today is that the country is fairly evenly divided, which is uh, to me somewhat surprising considering the distortion that I see at least uh, in the general news coverage. Uh, so I guess a two part question. How do you see this race unfolding? Uh, and does Joe Biden make it to the finish line? Meaning, will he be the Democratic nominee to begin with? Well, good question. Second question first. Um, no one gives up being the most uh, powerful person in the world because they just decided to one day. It doesn't happen that way. The last person who did that voluntarily uh, was not Richard Nixon, as you know, but Lyndon Baines Johnson in 1968. So that was 55 years ago. It doesn't happen. So Joe Biden leaving voluntarily uh, doesn't seem likely. As for the outcome today, I believe Donald Trump, with the election held today, I believe Donald Trump would be the next president of the United States. Um, I think the, the Republicans have an advantage from a message standpoint going into this contest with Trump as the nominee. He'll be seen, first of all, with these indictments as a victim, particularly in the heartland and in, uh, and in the South. He could pile up some real numbers um, because of all these indictments, which I think will backfire the way they've been done. Number one. Number two, um, the, other, uh, the perfect ad would be to have Joe Biden uh, looking like Joe Biden and then cut to Kamala Harris with quotes from her and then cut to Xi, the president of China. And you must remember that Americans do know that the Russians and the Chinese um, essentially invaded America in the sea space last week. Um, and this is very, very serious. And you go to Xi and then the screen goes to who do you think is going to protect America? And you cut out. I mean, these are real issues that voters understand. And voters are not people who talk about uh, get, taking the knee or whatever it is. They talk about service, um, net, communities, thing, and, 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 and basic bread and butter issues. I mean, it's just very difficult for, to see how Biden survives this uh, right today. Now, we're talking, of course, in uh, July of 2023 which is a long time away because five minutes in politics is akin to 25 years in anything else. But that's my general sense of it, Roger. Uh, you make a very good point about no president uh, voluntarily relinquishing uh, power. I read a terrific new book about the 1968 election by historian Luke Nichter. I'm about halfway through it. Uh, and he reveals that even though Lyndon Johnson dropped out shortly after the New Hampshire primary, he actually uh, continued to consider jumping back into the race right up until the Democratic National Convention. He actually thought uh, about helicopter landing into Chicago in 1968. Uh, Governor John Connolly uh, kept arguing that uh, Lyndon Johnson could be drafted to return to the political wars. Uh, there was a massive fight over the platform on the issue of Vietnam, and right up until the last minute, LBJ seriously considered 
jumping back into that race. It is kind of interesting that just this past week on August 8th was the 49th anniversary of the resignation of uh, Richard Nixon, uh, the only man to resign the presidency. Uh, President Trump has often said to me, you know, Nixon should have stuck it out. Nixon should have fought. Uh, I think it's, it's easy today in the Internet age to lose sight of the fact that in 1974, you had a completely monolithic media. You had three major broadcast networks. You had a number of very influential news magazines, Time, Newsweek, Look, Life, and so on. Uh, you had really no national newspapers. You had very strong regional newspapers. The New York Times was not considered a national newspaper in 1968. Uh, either was the Washington Post. So Nixon had no platform to avail himself uh, some way to counterattack, some, some medium uh, in which he could defend himself uh, and uh, launch a counteroffensive. So my question to you, Hank, is how uh, has the Internet changed American politics? It has changed it radically in ways that we don't even understand yet. Um, we used to be able to deal with papers. I mean, the press corps was, uh, was as you've noted, monolithic, uh, largely on the left. It's become now uh, much more variegated. Um, talk shows don't have the value they used to have, only in so much as they can then be streamed uh, on the Internet and to targeted portions of the population. Um, you can build a community online that has tremendous power. And the, you can force the press corps, what's left of it, or the traditional press corps, to cover the community you've created. This is very unusual, and the reporters can't set the agenda anymore. But to understand that when it came to Nixon and the, and the, uh, and the Watergate investigation, the rest, reporters set the agenda for the nation. It, it's not, you couldn't do that today. Um, the, the politicians will kind of laugh them off because they can get around them. It's called to put the computer on, create a message, uh, email into a certain group, um, come back to them, figure out what the metrics are. You'll know them in 72 hours, 96 hours to the outside, who's getting the message and who's receptive, and then go hit them again. And so you build a community uh, through, their, through their links that is extraordinarily large. Um, so it's entirely different. We don't, uh, even television doesn't have the capacity. I mean, we used to think that you could burn something in with 350 to 500 gross rating points, meaning that, that was uh, that anywhere from three and a half to that every that 100 that the 60 percent of a population in a particular area would see three and a half to five impressions of an ad. It doesn't matter anymore because no one's watching. They're streaming. They're uh, they're much more. They're able to control what they see, which was not the case in 1972, three, four and five when Nixon met his uh, political demise. Interesting that the raid on Mar-a-Lago took place. Uh, on the same day, August 8th, 49 years later. Just an interesting uh, uh, factoid. So uh, the candidacy of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, to me, as a, as a student of politics, I just find this extraordinarily interesting. I, I am obviously supporting my friend of 45 years, Donald Trump. I'm a supporter of his, uh, but I am intrigued by the Kennedy candidacy uh, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, he's a Kennedy, and he still has uh, the Kennedy magic. He is uh, an incredibly compelling speaker. Uh, he's extraordinarily knowledgeable. 
He takes, yes, some very controversial positions, but he seems to be very adept at being able to defend those positions with government uh, uh, studies uh, from foreign and U.S. sources. Uh, it is, uh, it's amazing to me how quick on his feet he is. Polling that I have looked at have shown that, uh, that the peace and freedom issues, the economic issues, uh, have a greater bearing both in the Democratic nominating process and at least right now uh, in the presidential contest. You were part of the team uh, who recognized in 1992 that it was the economy uh, that was uh, the driving issue uh, in the upset, I would say, re-election of Bill Clinton. Uh, I, I, based on everything I have seen, the discussion of vaccine safety and effectiveness uh, is not uh, propelling Kennedy's candidacy. It seems to me to be more the war and peace and breadbasket issues. Can Robert F. Kennedy, given the level of censorship uh, that he is that he is subjected to, can he get any traction? Yes, he can. And it's an important moment in our history for a whole host of reasons. Um, he is, I think, not not in the same um, place on the political spectrum, but he's very much like Gene McCarthy was in 1968, if we're going to use uh, means of analysis. Uh, from the outside, um, looking at issues differently, um, directed toward yo a younger portion of the electorate, but people forget that the same people that voted in many ways demographically for his father for president also voted for George Wallace and Jesse Jackson. That that innate that innate populism and a sense of unfairness that a large portion of electorate feels is very much in place. It's a raw wound. Those that serve rather than be served are angry. Those that build communities um, are angry at the chaos they see in front of them. The electorate is much more conservative than we think on most issues, excepting abortion. Um, and uh, Kennedy is going to be able to grab, I would guess today, as much as 25 to 30 percent of the Democratic Party electorate by showing up. Why? Because people want someone new. The data shows that. They want someone not of the baby boomer generation. The data shows that. They want someone who's more direct future arguments they face, which are, are they going to be able to have Anything like the lifestyle that the baby boomer generation had. Are they going to be, Kennedy can talk about that stuff. The others can't because they're badly positioned. But it seems to me that he is forced to use essentially the new media. It's, a, it's an Internet-based candidacy. Uh, has there been enough of a shift in the way people get their political news to the Internet for him to be able to get his message across. In other words, as you and I know, one of the most revolutionary changes in politics uh, brought by the Internet is that it, in, in, a, in, a, in a very specific way, it brought the cost of running for public office down. If you wanted to run for Congress on Long Island, for example, uh, and Long Island is in the New York City media market, New York City broadcast television, even at the lowest rate, which you would be entitled to as a federal candidate, is still exorbitantly expensive. New York City radio, the real stations that people listen to, WABC, for example, uh, because we reach so many millions of people, advertising here is not inexpensive. You get what you pay for. So uh, does this shift to the Internet, which in his case is a necessary shift, can that reach enough voters 
uh, for him to get traction? Well, the, this, the Kennedy candidacy will be the great test of that. Look, stations, we know the quarterly viewing, we, and television viewership is, uh, is defined by how many people view on the quarter hour, right? That's how we measure. Uh, is way down. Streaming is up. Other forms of uh, receiving visual media are up. But television is dying as we know it. Were that not the case, you wouldn't see the uh, you, you would you wouldn't see the kind of increases in uh, in media cost purchasing costs that television is just going through. Why they're trying to survive, and the corporations that bought stations and networks are trying to reap every dollar they can before the whole thing goes bust. It's only a matter of time before the networks don't matter. Uh, there are more combinations of networks. Are they important? They're important to people probably over fifty, maybe even over sixty. But they're not important in the same way as they once were when Walter Cronkite, Huntley and Brinkley, and I guess it would be, uh, let's see, uh, Robinson, was it Robinson? Yeah, uh, controlled or were the, were, the, were the most highly uh, thought of people in the world because they were the anchor people. And at every, every evening at 6 o'clock, you knew where America would be. Or as Johnson said, um, when, after Cronkite went to Vietnam and came back and had a, 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 did a and his evening a newscast said that the war was wrong, Johnson was quoted in the biographies as saying, I've lost Cronkite, therefore I've lost America. Not the case. Television doesn't matter in the way it did. It matters to some, but not all. Therefore, Kennedy has an opportunity, if he can get around uh, the crazy label, which is all over the Internet, if he can combat that, he's got a chance not to win necessarily, but to certainly have an extraordinary impact and to change our politics forever. Yeah, if I had a dollar for every person on Twitter who has posted a one-time picture uh, of me uh, and Robert Kennedy and General Michael Flynn, because we all spoke at, at a conference uh, together, alleging that we uh, that uh, I urged him to get into the race, not true, uh, that I'm advising his campaign, not true, uh, that I'm supporting him, not true. I like the idea that as a Democrat, he wants to seal our southern border, uh, I like the idea that as a Democrat, that he seems to have real skepticism about the war in Ukraine. Uh, I saw a great interview with him this morning on the Internet, watched it on Twitter, where he pointed out that uh, that uh, Putin uh, and Zelensky uh, were very close, had a Minsk agreement, would have been a peace uh, agreement that would have stopped uh, the killing, but that that was scuttled by our U.S. State Department. Uh, so I think he is extraordinarily compelling, but it is very easy to distort who he is on the Internet. Uh, I don't think he's radical at all. I think he's well within the progressive mainstream of the Democratic Party. He is pro-abortion rights. I happen to be pro-life. Uh, he is a strong believer in climate change. I'm a climate change skeptic. Maybe that's because I'm a conservative Republican and he is still a progressive Democrat. Yet sealing our borders uh, in order to end the drug and crime epidemic in the country doesn't seem to me to be a right or left position. It just seems to be common sense. So uh, the real question is, can they so vilify him? Can they so build uh, a caricature of him uh, that it really disables his candidacy? They can, and that's the problem here. Um, the same way that those working for him can use uh, Internet communications to build a candidacy in a very different way, um, the other side can do the same, and they can 
check the metrics almost instantly or within reason. I mean, we used to have to wait much longer to find out the real impacts of television ads. Now we know pretty quickly and for less money exactly what's going on. They need to be able to focus, that Kennedy campaign does, on very, very uh, clear, defined uh, geographic locales uh, for, you know, immediately off the top. It's Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada. Their arguments in many ways are much more progressive as we would define them, i.e. stealing the border and uh, protecting American labor, which is the underlying argument there. Whether true or not, it's a very labor union left idea. Okay, There's nothing unusual about that. Um, his father and Gene McCarthy ran for office in 1968 on a pledge to effectively to end the war in Vietnam. Uh, ending the war in Ukraine and American involvement uh, is something to consider. Um, the name... We're called, getting enough getting enough information online that uses the name as a means to communicate with with the black people, uh, Latinos particularly who would remember or who will be reminded and educated about the uh, La Raza in California that Cesar Chavez and the union organizers fought there to organize the farm workers is a serious serious thing too. I mean, there's, there's paths for him, and it could change. I believe American politics forever. We are in a very important and difficult and potentially dangerous period of time where the parties have completely broken down, their values are upside down, and it's not clear whether people identify by party or by other devices. But what we do see is, um, is parties that are scrambling to find definition and not being very successful out of a rather finding individuals to identify with. And that's the reason why the Republicans look in better shape than the Democrats do right now. Now, Hank, you are uh, 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 an ordained rabbi. You're a man of God. I know that you prayed for me and my family when we were going through great distress. Uh, have you examined these claims that Robert Kennedy is in some way anti-Semitic? Uh, and what is your conclusion? I don't think he's anti-Semitic. I think that he doesn't understand how to speak in sound bites. And I think that that is a problem for a political candidate even more so in the social media age, because what you say is more easily uh, distorted. If he'd said what he said in a soundbite, as opposed to linking uh, different groups, uh, people wouldn't say he was an anti-Semite. And frankly, um, he is a strong supporter of the state of Israel, as any rational person would be who cares about America, not because we love Jews, but because we love not eating grass. Harry Truman in 1948 understood that if you lost Greece and Turkey and the Mediterranean basin to the communists, and we would be eating grass here and we would have enemies off the coast of uh, New York. Um, the people in government today, the AOCs and the other uh, misread and ahistoricals, don't understand the value of that relationship, not because we love Jews, but because we love protecting America. Kennedy understands both those issues, and I think to label him an anti-Semite is both unfortunate and unfair. Uh, it does not appear to be true to me based on everything that I have read I was very surprised by the decision uh, by the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security uh, not to approve Secret Service protection uh, for Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, in 1968, after his father was brutally murdered uh, on the night of the 1968 California Democratic primary, which he won, uh, Congress passed a law uh, that allowed uh, the government to provide Secret Service protection for any qualified uh, presidential candidate who applied for it. 
was not automatic, although President Johnson ordered uh, protection for every candidate, both Republican and Democrat, running that year. Uh, the, Secret, the Secret Service Department used to be uh, under the Treasury Department uh, when the government was reorganized and the Department of Homeland Security was founded. The Secret Service was moved under DHS. Uh, given the uh, two, two things, given the murder of John F. Kennedy while serving as president, given the horrific murder of Robert F. Kennedy Sr., uh, U.S. Senator from New York, uh, former Attorney General of the United States, uh, and given the fact that many, many on the Internet uh, and in, in public discourse uh, whip up hatred uh, and disdain for Robert Kennedy, my fear is that this might, that this might fuel some madman, some insane person to either hurt or kill Robert Kennedy. I just find this decision shocking. Uh, Hank, your reaction. I am shocked by the decision as well. I want to go back a moment, though, Roger. We forget that Sirhan Sirhan publicly said that he murdered Robert Kennedy because he, he was a support because of his support for Israel. I mean, to call the son an anti-Semite is patently idiotic. And as to protecting him, that's pure politics. We ought to provide protection. We spend extraordinary amounts of money on stupidity. Here is a clear case where a person with a with a name. In a country where there are too many guns held by too many crazy people, you know, where that is going on, that we ought to be able to protect him in the way we would any other candidate for public office. And it would be a disaster were anything to happen to him, and we have a responsibility to protect him. Simple. So uh, politics has changed radically. Uh, there was uh, there have been a, an illustrious history of Republican governors uh, in New York State. Uh, Andrew Cuomo left the governorship uh, uh, under uh, very controversial circumstances, uh, yet he continues to have, I think, in excess of $6 million in uh, leftover campaign funds that he still controls. Uh, I noticed that he makes strategic appearances. I think I saw him on a, at a very large synagogue in Long Island recently where he was speaking. He pops up occasionally uh, on television. Uh, do you believe that Andrew Cuomo, who, by the way, I will concede to you, was a very skilled and very tough political operator, uh, do you think there is a path back for him? It is a, there is a path, Roger, and I think what you're asking is very important, but it's a difficult one. Um, you know, governors, not just in New York, but around the country, are most successful when they're almost imperial, when they force things to happen. And there are many, many, many... Um, examples we can cite historically where that's the case. If you look at New York itself for a moment, coming back to the question, governors that have been successful have all told the legislature to take a hike, done what they wanted. George Pataki was very successful. Uh, Andrew Cuomo was successful. Um, Hugh Carey was imperial. He said, look, New York City and New York State, get in line. We're bringing in the bankers to fix the problem. Or when, we, when the city and the state went bankrupt in 1975, and on and on and on. So more successful governors are much more imperial. Andrew Cuomo was. Can he win again? They want Andrew Cuomo without the Andrew. In other words, they want the Cuomo to straighten the mess out. That's what they're going to want come 2026. The issue for a governor like him is how do you deal with the women issue? And that's very significant. And, and it's hard to figure that one out. Um, I think that, that it's, 
it's very def- difficult to surmount. But the management issues um, that the state is experiencing and states throughout the country are going to experience from a financial and the chaotic perspective, every time the progressives take more, more ground, they make things worse for, for, for the electorate. Uh, it's a place where Andrew Cuomo could actually do well. How do you deal with the women issue? Not sure. If he can figure that out, he has a key to success. Folks, if you're just tuning in, this is The Roger Stone Show on WABC Radio. We are at 770 on the AM dial. You can also hear us at wabcradio.com. So go to your cell phone right now, call a friend or text a friend, family member, someone you like who loves politics and good political discourse, and tell them to tune in and remind them that we're here every Sunday from 3 to 5 in the afternoon on The Roger Stone Show. We're talking to Hank Scheinkoff, one of the most respected uh, Democratic political strategists in the country, uh, I challenge you this. Go do a Google News search uh, on Hank Scheinkoff or Henry Hank Scheinkoff, and you will see that he is, without any question, one of the most quoted men in American politics. He is a go-to guy for every political reporter nationally, state, and locally who wants the straight story about what is going on. Uh, and uh, I am very, very honored to have him uh, on the show today. Uh, Hank, stories in the New York Times this week uh, saying that progressives who seem to have made great strides within the Democratic Party uh, have begun quiet discussions about recruiting a candidate uh, to oppose current New York City Mayor uh, Eric Adams. Uh, a two-part question. One, do the immigration are the immigration policies of a Democrat president potentially destroying the ability of a Democrat governor to get reelected? Uh, and secondarily, does Eric Adams actually, in your opinion, have any vulnerability in the Democratic primary? Um, I think that the Democratic president is destroying the Democratic mayor unquestionably. Uh, that the blaming of Washington for the city, for New York City's problems can only go so far. What, what they've done is they've given Adams a respite from what he inherited, which was a complete disaster uh, from a, a budget and management standpoint of the city that, uh, the, of the largest city in the nation, um, all done by a progressive named Bill de Blasio. Um, crime was up when Adams took over. Uh, agencies were unmanageable. He has the long-term budget problems that the Blasio created. The capital budget, was, uh, which we used to do uh, infrastructure improvements, was, put, uh, was empty. I mean, so Adams inherited all this. Now he's got the migrants, and he's got crime problems, whether they're real or not. They're perceived that way. And he's got management issues, and he's still got budget problems, and it's all collapsing on him. Can he be beaten? The, the, the idiocy is that you can beat him from the left. If a left candidate runs and Adams runs in a primary and there's a, per, there's a guy from the center or a woman from the center with real money who can make an argument about managing the city and turning it into uh, a place where you can create jobs and, and, uh, and, uh, and re- reposition the economy, get rid of the politics and, and perceive corruption, which is going to have to be part of the argument, and make the police department function better, or the entire criminal justice system, that person has a shot. But you need a three-way primary to do that. Uh, so there's a question I don't know the answer to. Uh, the uh, the New York State Republican Party is a shadow of its former self. 
Uh, Ed Cox, a good friend of mine who is the returned as state chairman, is doing everything possible to change that. The Republicans uh, ran a surprisingly strong race with Lee Zeldin. I think that had to do more with the unpopularity of the incumbent, uh, Kathy Hochul. Uh, do the Democratic Party organizations, what we used to call the machine, sometimes referred to as Tammany Hall, uh, in this age of mass communications, do they still have any juice? Do they matter? No. No, they don't. The, uh, they can turn out some portion of the electorate, but not with the intensity. Although having a mayor that they can do business with is pretty good because they can get jobs. That means at least they can get office job holders to turn out and do work. But campaigns, uh, as a function of the permanent campaign, have become largely entrepreneurial efforts. So Tammany Hall or some relationship to these organizations really doesn't matter. They're essentially job providers for a small group of people and, uh, and arrangers of interest in the courts and places they do have some control, and the DAs that they do control, uh, district attorneys. So uh, it, it, what this has done is kind of upended politics because we don't have a clear sense of what party means anymore, and we don't have clear definition, and we don't have ethnic group uh, allegiance to uh, political parties. It just doesn't work that way. All right. I'm afraid we have to end it uh, about there. Hank Scheinkoff, without any question, uh, in my opinion, one of the most brilliant Democratic uh, political strategists in the country today, uh, a hard-bitten veteran of over 700 campaigns. Uh, if I were a Democrat and I was running for any office at any level, he's the first man uh, that I would call. Hank, uh, we got one minute left. I'm going to give you the last word. Roger, it, it's, um, it would be better if we were all younger and we could view this through a different prism. But you know what? The, the, the system that we participated in is being challenged in ways that may not be solvable. And that is the great fear I have for this most extraordinary nation. May God protect it. Uh, Hank, you sent me a text this morning saying getting old is not for the weak. God bless you, my brother, and thank you for joining us on The Roger Stone Show here at okay. WABC Radio. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. Welcome back. I'm the host of The Roger Stone Show, none other than Roger Stone. And joining me now is, well, one of my favorite people in the entire world, Kimberly Guilfoyle. You remember Kimberly from Fox Television, but now she is the star of the Kimberly Guilfoyle show on Rumble, where she is racking up enormous following. Uh, I just noticed, uh, Kimberly, that a show we did earlier this week had 245,000 downloads and growing every single day. So you have mastered uh, this new medium, and I'm very grateful that you can join us today on The Roger Stone Show. 
Yeah, well, you know, we uh, love when you come on because all of the viewers and the listeners love Roger Stone, just like President Trump does. So it's always a pleasure to be on with you, my friend. Now, people who don't know you don't know that you are not only an accomplished attorney, but you are also a prosecutor uh, in Los Angeles and in San Francisco, uh, that you had a extraordinary track record of convictions, that you were very famous for giving your summations, which I'm told were legendary, without a single note. So taking off your political hat for a moment and just looking at at this as an attorney, what do you think of these recent charges that have been filed by Special Counsel Jack Smith against President Donald Trump in the District of Columbia? Yeah, I mean, this is, um, you know, it's, it's a pile on at this point, uh, Roger. They're just doing anything they can because they're scared to death to be able to go up against this guy at the ballot box. They want to suppress his supporters, his donors, uh, the enthusiasm, the momentum for President Trump and his candidacy. But I think as you and I have discussed, you know, it really is backfiring in spectacular fashion because Trump is up by 40 points in uh you know, many uh, head-to-head uh, contests with, you know, in the primary against all these opponents. He's crushing Ron DeSantis, is way, way in the rearview mirror, uh, choking on Trump's dust, literally. And, uh, and and Ron has only himself to blame for that, of course, in his, um, you know, uh, the leeches that are the political consultants that have been uh, bleeding him dry and giving him bad advice and ruining his political career. But um, people can be responsible, you know, for their own choices. Uh, Meanwhile, Trump is just really crushing it. And I'm telling you, this is not just, oh, you know, the MAGA base, the America First people. This is people who are libertarians, independents, even Democrats that I talk to, as painful as it is to speak to them, they say, this is unbelievable what is happening in this country. And Jack Smith has no credibility whatsoever. Uh, we'll be expecting something now, you know, in Georgia, too. We'll just have to wait for something else to come out against, you know, the Bidens. And then, of course, that indictment will drop. It's always just like that. And uh, people see through it. Um, what I think these, uh, you know, these guys don't get is as crazed as they are. And really, it is true. We always used to talk about years ago, you know, Trump derangement syndrome. They've all got it. And they don't realize that this base strongly supports President Trump, that these witch hunts are appalling, that the public is aghast over what is happening. And these don't have any credibility in and of themselves, factually speaking, legally speaking, but also the fact that they're just piling them on. It's sort of just overkill to the point where you're like, okay, nothing to see here, folks, and just another day, another Tuesday, and another indictment. And that's how it's ending up being. Um, They're trying to just, you know, preoccupy the president, bury him in legal bills and in motion work and in appearances and all of the above to try to, like, keep him off the trail. But... You know, it's just not working. And I think people have really expressed uh, well-deserved disdain for Merrick Garland uh, and for Jack Smith and, you know, for Alvin Bragg um, and these people that are just, you know, hell-bent with this bloodlust against, you know, President Trump. But I think he's handled it well. And I'm curious to hear what you have to say about this, because the way he's approached it, I think, is very smart in the press, where he has said, look, you know, they're after, um, you know, me because they're after you and it is an honor to stand 
and, you know, take this and push through and persevere because he's doing it for us. And I think that 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 resonates. I think it's good messaging. I must say, I spoke to him on the phone this morning and he was cool as a cucumber. I mean, it's just amazing the strength uh, of this guy. A a lesser man. Look, I've been in the crosshairs. It's a terrible, terrible thing. Uh, And I've had I had some very dark days. Donald Trump doesn't seem to ever get depressed. He didn't ever seem to he can get angry because of the injustice of it. But I think that's understandable. But he's mm-hmm. amazingly resolute. He's amazingly determined. He's amazingly optimistic. I mean, uh, he's very even keeled. It's it's the do- same Donald Trump that I knew 45 years ago. People say, has he changed? No, he really hasn't changed. He's an optimist. Uh, he's a warrior. Uh, he is, uh, he's got a great sense of humor. People don't know that. He's also a regular guy. In other words, he, the one thing Ron DeSantis, uh, our governor here in Florida, and boy, nobody worked harder to put him across than you did, Kimberly. You stumped yeah, for that guy. Uh, and yeah, now he says, uh, and now he says, uh, oh, he would have won without the support of Donald Trump. That <laughs> is a fairy what tale. A, what, a, what a bold-faced lie. You know what I can't stand? I can't stand people who just lie outright. The no, you know, the numbers and the polling and where he was, he was going to get smashed, like done, forget it, not a chance to win. And Trump stepped in and turned the whole thing around. And we put all our resources, all our time into being in the field with him to campaign, to raise money, to do everything and at least be honorable enough to tell the truth and say, yes, I'm very grateful for the support and for all the effort that went behind, you know, my candidacy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So now he's saying he can, he just did it all his own. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's really, and people who don't live in Florida really don't know the history of this, but Ron DeSantis was a fairly unknown congressman with a fairly uh, indistinguished record. Uh, he was at 7% in the polls. The state agriculture commissioner, who was also a popular congressman, Adam Putnam, had the active support of every single one of the 67 county Republican chairmen in the state of Florida, every single elected Republican in the state house uh, and in the state Senate endorsed Adam Putnam. Every member of the Republican congressional delegation, with the exception of Matt Gates, endorsed Adam Putnam. Uh, Ron DeSantis was out of money, out of time, out of ideas. Uh, what the President Trump has said is absolutely true. Ron came to uh, President Trump with tears in his eyes, begged for an endorsement. Uh, and because the president had seen uh, Ron DeSantis on Fox and had heard him on conservative radio defending the president uh, in the Russian collusion hoax. And the president was unaware of the fact that in 2016 uh, that Ron DeSantis declined to even endorse Donald Trump after he was the Republican nominee uh, of the convention. He kept insisting that they were running independently. He never endorsed Trump, but he saw his main chance to, to elevate his profile uh, I, I like the fact that he that he defended the president on the Russian collusion hoax, but Donald Trump decided to give the guy a chance. Uh, and chance. It, it really was like a thermonuclear bomb. I mean, DeSantis's candidacy took off like a rocket. He left Adam Putnam, who's not a bad guy, uh, not an America first Republican, more of a, an establishment Republican, but he left him in the dust. Uh, and then he was locked in 
an extraordinarily difficult general election. Susie Wiles, who is now uh, chief of staff for President Trump, one of the most capable women in American politics, came in to save Ron DeSantis, took over his general election campaign because Ron had been nominated really as a media phenomena, uh, really solely uh, on the endorsement of Donald Trump. She whipped that campaign into shape. But what really dragged Ron DeSantis over the finish line uh, was the fact that Donald Trump changed his schedule in the last two weeks to stage three very successful rallies in strategic parts of the state for Ron DeSantis and literally dragged him uh, over the finish line. Also, I think, was crucial in the very, very close election of Rick Scott to the U.S. Senate. Uh, so people who don't live in Florida, they don't know that story. Uh, and early on, when I told people that, that Governor DeSantis was going to challenge President Trump, People told me that I was being ridiculous. Quit splitting, splitting the movement. Why are you, why are you dividing us? They said. Well, I'm a pretty shrewd judge of political character. In this case, personal character. If Ron DeSantis had simply waited his turn, he might have had some prospect to be president. I think, and the poll numbers reflect this. If this primary were held in Florida today, in Florida where both men live, Donald Trump would beat Ron DeSantis by almost 30 points in his home state. Unbelievable. It is, uh, Unbelievable. It, it is counterintuitive here, but it seems to be absolutely true, and Kimberly asked you to comment on this, that every time the president is indicted in one of these, I think, transparently politically motivated, fabricated indictments, he not only gets stronger, but he pulls in tens of thousands, even millions of dollars in small and tiny donations, small and, and middle-sized donations. Trump's has never, ever, since I have known him and since he got into politics, has never been the toast of the financial elite, never been the toast of Wall Street, never been the toast of the hedge fund managers, never been the, the candidate uh, of the wealthy globalists, uh, never been the candidate of the Republican establishment. His entire movement, our movement, the movement in which Kimberly Guilfoyle is one of the undisputed and outspoken leaders, the America First movement, is funded by the $100 donations, the $25 donations, the $50 donations. By my calculations, I actually think it is possible, uh, given his reliance on big donors, many of whom are maxed out and many of whom reportedly have now turned off the spigot, I think Ron DeSantis at his current burn rate uh, could be out of money by October 1st. How is the fundraising going I, I, for President Trump? Yeah. So I think that's totally right because just, you know, you know, I used to be in the national finance, um, get a chair for the president for the campaign. He's burning through money like a bonfire. Um, it's out of control. And somebody said to me just recently, they expect that DeSantis will get out of the race and drop out in October. What do you think? Well, he's going to be out of cash. I, I don't know how he, he backs down when his campaign slogan is never back down. But he's now at the point 
where he's hurting himself uh, in his home state. He, he's really limiting his future. Look, this is a pretty big story today, but Laura Loomer discovered that Ron DeSantis sent $1 million to the Speaker of the House for a brand new super PAC that the Speaker formed days after the Florida State Legislature changed the state law, amended state election law, to allow Ron DeSantis to remain in state office, governor, while running for federal office. No other person in the state of Florida can do that. So if I were in the state legislature, let's say, and I wanted to run for Congress, I would have 10 days to resign from my state office uh, before I could launch my federal candidacy. Uh, it is very clear to me that this smells to me like a bribe. Million dollars, a lot of money. But it came from one of Ron DeSantis's political committees to the Speaker of the Florida House, and it's quid pro quo. I think it smells very bad. Uh, the governor's term then here in the, in the state of Florida ends in 2026. He is term limited. He cannot run for a third term. The Florida state yep. constitution does not allow it. There's not a Senate race in this state. There's one this year. Rick Scott is running for reelection. Rick Scott will be reelected. Uh, Rick Scott, in my opinion, would be a great choice to replace Mitch McConnell as Republican leader in the Senate. That would be a great day, wouldn't it? I'd love that, yeah. I, I would, too. It's time to ditch Mitch. Boy, President ditch Trump Mitch. called this one first. Ditch Mitch. Sounds like a bumper sticker <laughs> to me. Uh, uh, it, it is uh, It is really, I think, uh, now a situation where Ron will be out of money uh, and therefore the option of, of stopping now, warehousing the money that he has uh, in these super PACs, which presumably he still controls, putting it aside and waiting till 2028, I don't even think he can do that. Uh, I know a lot of people, a guy you know, I won't say his name, fellow you know, Kimberly, he gave $30,000 to the friends of Ron DeSantis. He thought he was supporting the governor's re-election to the governorship, as I did. That money went to a super PAC called Friends of Ron DeSantis, which was a state entity. Then the name of that organization was changed to some totally generic name. And then $83 million from that fund was transferred to a super PAC that is designed to oppose Donald Trump uh, and to support Ron DeSantis. Now, my friend in Palm Beach, who's a self-made businessman, retired, uh, you know, living the good life. Uh, his wife has some health problems. He's a great guy. Uh, he feels like he's been defrauded. He he wants his $30,000 back. He's a lover and supporter of President Donald Trump. That's not what he gave Ron DeSantis the money for. Uh, and uh, because the Federal Election Commission has a 3-3 split, you can never expect any adjudication of serious legal issues there. Ron may get away uh, with having transferred that money. However, right now they're burning through it. Uh, if he were smart, he would drop out now, warehouse that money, which is perfectly legal, uh, and use it for a future presidential campaign. But I think he has turned off so many in the MAGA base uh, that I, I think he's danged himself for the long term. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I'm going to tell you something. You know, the new polls came out and Make America Great Again PAC put out that uh, Ron DeSantis drops to third place, Roger, in national GOP survey. So now he is 
behind Vivek Ramaswamy. I mean, my God. So the writing is on the wall here. He's burning cash. He's losing momentum. He's damaged himself politically. This was not smart at all. He should have just been, like, gluing himself, Velcroing him to the MAGA magic of Donald Trump and prepared for 2028 to earn that endorsement to be the front runner. He did no such thing. And I think, and President Trump has said to me, you know, that he's going to be too damaged to even run again in 2028. I think if he was smart and he was listening, if he's listening to this show, he should drop out, like you're saying, take the advice of the great Roger Stone and get it together and try to rebuild reputation uh, and standing and political goodwill and do the right thing. Yeah, I don't think he's going to do that. I have predicted, and maybe he has a chance. That's it. I have predicted on this show, uh, stick to my prediction, that at the end of his uh, term, uh, that, uh, that Ron DeSantis' wife, uh, Jill Casey DeSantis, will run for governor. Uh, I saw someplace this week, I think it was in Politico, where he openly mused about, you know, I don't think she's interested, but if she ever did run, you'd have a very hard time beating her in a Republican primary. Uh, to me, that's a, that's a tacit admission that this idea is, is on the drawboards, that, that I think uh, the governor and his wife have become so addicted uh, to the lifestyle, to the Political adulation. Uh, look, in 1976, when I was working for Ronald Reagan, I said this uh, uh, elsewhere on the show. When we got low on money, Ronald Reagan and his wife traveled commercial to our rallies. But the DeSantis's burned through millions of dollars for private jets uh, when they should have been using that money for voter contact. I saw one of the officials at uh, one of his super PACs say, we have $100 million uh, and we have the best ground game. Ground game? How do you turn out votes for a candidate that many voters have never heard of and the voters who have heard of him have a, a mixed review of? Uh, so uh, I think he has done extraordinary damage to himself. Kimberly, you were one of the absolute stars at Fox News. That's where I first met you. You're still my favorite there at all of all time. We still have a few friends inside the building. Uh, this upcoming Fox uh, debate, uh, to which uh, all the other Republicans uh, have been invited, and I think they have all accepted. Do you think, just your personal opinion, do you think uh, President Trump has anything to be gained by going to this debate? Honestly, I really don't. I really don't. I tend to agree with them. People, you know, and, and everyone knows Trump isn't a guy who's like afraid or intimidated or scared. He's, you know, a master strategist, and he's got great instincts. Okay, and as you have seen and the world has seen, he's great at these debates. They're unbelievable. The only thing that would be worth watching for Fox is if he, in fact, did debate. Otherwise, that whole thing is just going to be milk toast and completely boring and ridiculous. So why would he get up there and debate any of these people? You know, so they can try to pile on him or sit one gotcha moment or whatever. No, I don't think there's anything to gain. And no offense, like, why are we even in this primary? I think it's kind of beneath him, to be honest. He's, you know, the former president of the United States who did a phenomenal job, one of the best presidents we have ever had, ever by far in this country. And um, I think it's just beneath him. I think operate from a position of strength, let all those guys kill each other, and that's it. Yeah, I kind of liked his comment that uh, he'd be watching the debate because he considered it like an audition uh, 
to be for vice VP, president. Yeah. yeah. Very, totally. very, very clever. I think that was very clever. Look, I, I that was argue good. That, I, I think we concur, right? Yes, I totally agree. With one exception, uh, Chris Christie's at 2% in the polls. I don't really know what he's doing. His entire campaign is based on hate and revenge. He has no plan for America. Uh, he, couldn't, he couldn't even carry New Jersey today. His poll ratings in New Jersey are horrific. Uh, this, I saw they gave him 35 minutes on CNN the other night, uh, in which all he did was, uh, uh, was attack Donald Trump uh, and make it very clear that he's prepared to send how, as many billions more to Ukraine uh, as they want without any, uh, any tether on that money. I mean, Rand Paul, who I really admire a lot, sponsors a, an amendment in the U.S. Senate after they pass these massive billion-dollar payouts to Ukraine for the war effort, asking that they put an inspector general in charge of that money to keep an eye on where it's going, and that's defeated under the leadership of Mitch McConnell. Why would any senator, Republican or Democrat, not want to know where our tax dollars are going, not want to know whether it's being skimmed off the top by crooked Ukrainian politicians, whether some of it's even making its way back to the United States. But Chris Christie, he, he's all in on the war in Ukraine. He visited Ukraine last week. That explains the food shortages, I think. Yeah, I mean, this, this is the thing, you know. Um, I, I'm also just very curious to see going forward you know, who remains to be smart about how they're handling everything with President Trump? Um, I think Vivek, I hear a lot of people really like him um, and how he's handling it, that he's been very supportive about to the president, as well as Tim Scott's been playing it smart. Not Chris Christie. Yeah, that's just a that's just a nasty act of revenge. He's not a he's not a serious candidate. Uh, 12, 2012 was his year. Uh, he took a pass. Uh, he uh, then tried to get on the ticket with Mitt Romney. That didn't work. Then he wanted to get on the ticket with Donald Trump. I'd like to remind people, uh, had that happened and the George Washington Bridge scandal broke that October, he would have scuttled the entire ticket. Uh, his lawyer in that, by the way, Christopher Wray, your current FBI director, mm -hmm. represented Chris Christie in the George Washington Bridge closing scandal. Uh, interesting little factoid there. Uh, I'm mm -hmm. not even sure why he's running. Tim Scott really has impressed me, I must say. Uh, if, uh, and this has happened traditionally in American politics, people who realize that sometimes you have to run for president more than one time to get nominated. Some realize that you run for president to position yourself for the ticket. Uh, if, and I don't know this to be the case, but if that is what Tim Scott has in mind, I think he's handling himself extraordinarily well. Mm -hmm. I think so, too, by the way. He's he's being a class act. People like him. You don't hear anybody trashing or being upset with him. He's not angering the base because Trump's followers and the base, um, they have a long memory for this. And, you know, people say, oh, well, what percentage of, you know, did you really find out what percentage of the Republican, um, you know, voters and base is really Trump's base? You know, how would anyone figure that out? I go, what are you talking about? Look at the Republican primary and how many people are voting and supporting Trump in the polls. Like, come on, he's running away with it. That's how many. It's not Mitch McConnell's party, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, that, that is uh, absolutely, absolutely true. Uh, 
tell me your impression of the candidacy of Nikki Haley. It's another one I can't figure out, but maybe you have some insights. I don't know. She was like the first in to go. I mean, I think no one's even talking about her. I think she's largely, you know, irrelevant. But I will tell you this. President Trump is not picking her. I would think not. I would think not. Yeah, he has no interest in that whatsoever. Do you have a it's very, very early. People ask me this constantly. Who will Trump take for vice president? First of all, implicit in that question is a recognition that Trump will be the Republican nominee. I think that is absolutely true. Uh, All he needs is one more indictment and he'll lock it up because it is counterintuitive. Every time uh, they uh, there's more bad news in Biden land, whether it is uh, cocaine found at the White House or uh, evidence of wires directly from the Ukrainian energy company to Joe and Hunter Biden. By the way, Andrea Mitchell of uh, NBC says uh, these are unfounded uh, ev- uh, uh, rumors of corruption by the Bidens. That's unfounded. Evidently, she can't read. Uh, it's really hard to understand. But it, it is it is interesting. It's kind of a tit for tat thing. Every time there is any inkling of, of new revelations about the epic corruption of the Bidens, we're talking about extortion. We're talking about bribery. We're talking about money laundering talking about influence peddling. Uh, We're talking about multi-million dollar payments from Ukraine, from China, from Russia, from Romania. Every time there is uh, new breaking news, well, don't look over there, folks. Look over here. It's a new indictment of Donald Trump. I've looked extensively at this Georgia phone call. I've I've listened to the entire audio. I've read the entire transcript. It's tedious, by the way. It is absolutely clear that Donald Trump did nothing whatsoever wrong. He didn't tell the Secretary of State to go out and find or manufacture, uh, you know, 18,000, or pardon me, 11,870 ballots, I think it is. He told the Secretary of State, you have already inadvertently counted that number of illegal ballots. And he breaks it down. Convicted felons, people who are deceased, people who are who are no longer live in the state. Uh, but they have bastardized this. They have misrepresented it to the American people. I think that which does not kill Donald Trump merely makes him stronger. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And I think they're being honest. They didn't know that it would have these unintended consequences that have actually just served to propel his candidacy, um, his policies, uh, the momentum, the enthusiasm. And they weren't counting on this. And like you and I have discussed before, you know, their plan was, okay, let's go ahead and um, do this and we'll jump in. I think DeSantis thought that's what he was going to do and that Trump was going to get crippled by legal problems, lawfare, um, indictments, you know, the globalists and the uniparty to the point where he was going to have to drop out or that his numbers would, would fall dramatically. None of that has happened. So break all your big plans, folks, because it backfired. All right, we're out of time. Kimberly, tell people where folks can see the Kimberly Guilfoyle show every day. All right, so you can see my show, download the Rumble app, and subscribe to my channel and to my friend Roger Stone and my sweetheart Donald Trump Jr. I am on every Monday and Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern live, and it's a great show. Make sure you do it. Check it out and tell your friends about it. We have fabulous guests like the one and only the greatest Roger Stone on there. And you'll learn a lot. You'll get the inside stuff because you're not going to get it from the mainstream media. That's for sure. But we'll tell you the truth and give you the facts. 
All right. This has been the Roger Stone, Kimberly Guilfoyle Mutual Admiration Society meeting. Kimberly Guilfoyle, thank you so much for joining us on the Roger Stone Show here at WABC Radio. My pleasure. You're the best. Richard Nixon. Well, I'm not a crook. Ronald Reagan. Tear down this wall. George W. Bush. I can hear you. The rest of the world hears you. And Donald Trump. And a friend of mine for a long time, he uh, only likes politics. If you ask him about how are the Yankees doing, he has no interest. If you ask him almost anything, he likes politics and he's a professional at the highest level. Roger Stone. All of these presidents relied on one man to secure their seat in the Oval Office. That man is Roger Stone. This is The Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. This is uh, Roger Stone. Well, I'm a man who's been through the Washington, D.C. meat grinder. And now I see the exact same thing that happened to me happening to Donald Trump. It's it's like deja vu all over again, as uh, Yogi Berra used to say. Uh, and it's a it's a carbon copy. Nowhere in the law does it say when you are charged with a crime, justly or unjustly, but when you are charged with a crime, do you forfeit your First Amendment rights to free speech? Nowhere does it say that you lose your ability to defend yourself. Now, in my case, the judge slapped me with a gag order because she said my public defense of myself against the onslaught of CNN, MSNBC, The New York Times, the dominant Washington Post uh, in the District of Columbia, that that would taint the jury pool. What could taint the jury pool any more than the relentless attacks of the Washington Post? But the, the fact that that's not true uh, is demonstrated by the fact that the judge not only kept the gag order on me uh, during my trial, but even after I was convicted and awaiting sentencing, long after the jury had been dismissed, Right up until the time that President Donald Trump commuted my sentence, uh, the gag order was in place. So I couldn't go on WABC radio, I couldn't go on television, I couldn't go on Fox, I couldn't go on the internet to defend myself. You see, they what they want to do here is they want to gag you, and then they want to lynch you. Well, Special Counsel Jack Smith uh, filed a protective order this past week when President Donald Trump said on True Social... If they come after me, I'm going to come after them. Put that in the context of a presidential campaign. It was bad enough that I was gagged, but I wasn't running for president of the United States. So the real irony here is they're accusing Donald Trump. They've actually charged him with election interference when what we see happening before our very eyes is the election interference. Whether they are not, whether they are successfully able to gag him really remains to be seen. And then we found out today uh, that Twitter uh, was subpoenaed by Jack Smith for all of Donald Trump's Twitter files. Well, all of his tweets can be seen online, even though he himself has not begun uh, posting at his Twitter profile. He's able to if he wants to. I'm among those who have urged him 
to return to Twitter from time to time. He still has, I think, 81 million followers on Twitter. But uh, a, uh, a, this uh, was resisted, uh, and Twitter did not want to turn that over. They were fined $350,000. They appealed the order to turn over their records. Uh, the uh, Court of Appeals in D.C., uh, two judges appointed by Barack Obama uh, and one judge appointed by Joe Biden upheld the order, and Twitter was forced to hand over Donald Trump's Twitter records. Here's the cropper. They said that it was vital that Trump not know of their request for his Twitter records because it would make the president a flight risk. Does anyone really think uh, that Donald Trump is going to leave the country in the middle of a successful presidential campaign? Look, we can go to the bottom line of this very easily. If he wasn't leading the Republican field by almost 40 points, if he wasn't leading Joe Biden in virtually every national poll and in the swing states, there would be no persecution. If you ask me, you can call all of this witch hunt number four. This is The Roger Stone Show.